0: Are you looking to achieve a high quality and full life? You're in the right place. Welcome to Heightened Living Living. with your host, Austin Floyd. What is going on? This is a fantastic one where I'm talking to Alex Hutchinson of the book Endure. So Alex has been around for a while. At 28, he started to become a journalist. Yeah, at 28, after being a physicist and a runner. And really his interview style and the way that he writes is phenomenal. But in this, we talk really about the mindset of top performers, of athletes, of all these different people who do things that we often think we can't do. And a lot of it just comes down to motivational self-talk, facial expression, and a few other things. So I think you're really going to like this one. Um, So let's just dive into it with uh, Alex Hutchinson. Hey Alex, thank you for coming on the show. So I got to start off with, uh, what is your favorite superhero?
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's a that's a deep one. I, I you know I hate to be boring. I think I'd go with Superman uh, just because uh, he has some. In, in Canada, we're very insecure about our cultural contributions to the world. So anyone who has Canadian connections, and I think the creative Superman was uh, was Canadian. So I'll go with uh, I'll go with Superman.
0: Boom. So okay. So then Superman. Coming from Canada, what was the start of both your journalistic background and then moving into running sports and really just understanding the mindset and the way that humans work uh, physically?
1: So the the running came first by a, by a long time. I, I started running in, I mean, I've been running for as long as I can remember, but I started competing in high school and, uh, you know, it quickly became something pretty serious for me where I, I ran through college and then ran post-collegiately for the the national team so that's been an obsession of mine for for a long time and it's pretty hard to to sort of separate out you know did I get into running because it had spiritual meaning to me or did I get into it because I was good at it when I was a kid or or, you know but the the result is that it it is now something that uh that has a lot of meaning to me um the journalism actually came a lot later I I started out uh as a physicist um that's what I studied at university initially Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was 28 that I decided uh, that I wasn't quite in the right fit for myself career-wise. And I went back and I didn't have really any experience in journalism at the time. So I uh, I, I went back and did a, a master's in journalism at 28, a one-year program to try and figure out if that was something that would work for me. And then I, I'd spent a year as the sort of uh, you know, the, in the, on the Superman theme, as the as the Jimmy uh, at at, uh, at the Ottawa Citizen, as the as the as an intern doing the the sort of traffic accidents and and uh, you know pet stories that that needed to be done, and then that that was uh, finished there in 2006, and and went freelance at that point, and pretty quickly then, since I was freelance, I started to focus in on the stuff I was interested in, which was science and endurance, and so I ended up sort of homing in on the science of endurance uh after that
0: awesome yeah and now you've written uh a bunch of books and your newest book is endure where you really broke into the mindset behind how great performers do what they do and i i thought it was so fascinating because it's literally a lot of it is about just that mental frame and that self-talk and uh either it's there or it's not, and you can train it. But if it's not there, then you perceive the pain and the exertion a lot differently. But I wanted to jump into endure. And uh, what you really found was that key to those top performers.
1: Yeah, I should say that. I think you summed up nicely where I ended up in the book. That, that's not where I started out thinking the book was going to be about. <laughs> I, I, I'm a uh, uh, you know, coming from a, a science background, I'm a pretty sort of empirical guy. I like things that you can measure and that you can see and understand very clearly. So I've never put a lot of sort of faith in or belief in this sort of idea that oh, if you believe, you can achieve and all that. That's not not really my. uh, uh That's not that's not where I usually come down on. But totally. in trying to understand, so I wanted to understand the the point of the book was to try and understand the limits of endurance to try and understand. What it is when you're when you push to your limits, whether it's running or whether it's in some other context, whether it's you know in sports or in at school or in life or whatever, um, w- w- when you hit your limits, what is that? And what I realized over the course of many years of talking to to researchers is that it uh, it's very hard to say, oh well, it's your lactic acid or it's yep. your you know it's your heart rate that limits you or it's uh, you know your fuel supply that in fact, every time you look at one of these things that seems like a physical limit, uh, you end up bumping up against this, this fact that actually you didn't quite hit the physical limit. Something held you back before you got there. And so that, you know, and I would say, so that, that's what sort of forced me to say, well, okay, what, what is that? What, how is it that our brains uh, set those limits? And what is it about some people that allow themselves to push themselves a little harder? Um, and, You know, I I I definitely won't say that I I came up with the 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 final answers or anything like that because it's a very complicated topic. But just the realization that in most cases, when you're when you hit those limits, those limits are dictated by your brains, Mm -hmm. by your brain. That to me, that's a really powerful kind of insight.
0: Oh, I think that is literally one of the most powerful because the moment that you understand that is the moment that you can go. Wait, what is
1: actually stopping me at this point in time? And then from there. Yeah, and it, it it doesn't mean that these limits just because they're set by your brain it doesn't mean that they're imaginary or that you can just decide. <laughs> oh, I, I'm I'm gonna you know go back to Superman. I'm gonna leap over the ten story building or whatever the case may be. Uh, you, you know, your your brain thinks you can't do that for a very good reason because you're you're getting very close to your limits. But it's and 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 so learning how to push a little harder is not going to make me an Olympic champion. Uh, but. For most of us we're interested not in necessarily comparing ourselves to the Olympic champions, but comparing ourselves to ourselves how can mm-hmm. How can I be a little bit better next week than I am this week and so for those sorts of comparisons, these relatively subtle changes can make a big difference these these you know learning to push a little harder or just to maintain for a little longer before giving up or whatever the case may be this is where the the differences can happen totally and so That leads
0: me into more of um, the way that you think about things and going from uh, running to sports and understanding physiology to becoming a journalist at 28. What was that mindset that was allowing you to go from uh, basically changing a lot? Of course, you were in the same field, but going to journalism and now you talk to some of the top experts in the world. Where was that like, hey, I, I just need to go do this?
1: Yeah, it, you know, and it's 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 interesting trying to reconstruct my thoughts leading up to that change. It, it's always it's it's kind of always altered by the the way things went. Mm-hmm. So it, you know now my path seems obvious because journalism has turned out great, and I, I I'm really I really enjoy it, and I like it, and so it's easy to look back and and sort of tell a story where it's like I always knew I was meant to be telling stories or something like that. Uh, whereas the reality is you know as best as I can remember. Uh, there was a huge amount of uncertainty. And in fact, jur- journalism is something that I thought very briefly about in high school, but didn't really pursue it. And then after my undergraduate degree, I, I thought again about journalism, but did, you know, I, I didn't pursue it. And then in my mid-20s, I wrote a few articles and I applied for some internships uh, at you know, all sorts of different magazines, didn't get any jobs. So it's something that be, it took me a long time before I actually made the leap and so f- for me, there were a couple of things that w- were important to me. One is the, one, the, the biggest factor, I think, the, the thing that allowed me to take the leap was the decision that, or, or the, I, I had the sense, I, I thought about it and I thought, I think I will enjoy this process regardless of what the outcome is. So I had this kind of holy grail of where I'd like to be, which actually looks a lot like where I am now, which is being a freelancer and, and being able to write about things that are important to me and that I feel mm-hmm. passionate about. But I thought to myself, if I enter this profession and, and success is only going to be judged by whether I manage to write a book or whether I manage to write about things that I want to write about, yeah. then that's a big risk. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I'm not, sure I, I'm not sure I would have made the leap if that was my only criterion for success. But I, was, I, I thought about it and I, I gathered what information I could about journalism. And I thought, I would like the process of trying to get there, yep. uh, of, of trying to do that. And so even if I don't make it, that will be, uh, you know, it will have been a, a, a fun struggle. And for me, that was, I was able to make a, real, a really uh, close analogy to my experiences running. Because I I, I I running was probably the most important thing in my life till I was twenty eight. I really wanted to make the Olympics,
0: yeah,
1: and I didn't and there's a lot of when you talk to people who are who run or compete in any sport, but you know I, I know running best. if you talk to people who run in college, there's two schools of thought. one is by the time you're twenty one you know if you're going to go to the Olympics, and if you're not, why would you keep running after college? you know you've, your scholarship's done, like you quit, you get on with other things in life, and the other school of thought is hey it's great to to it's it's really fun to be pursuing something to the utmost of your ability and to be p- engaged on that mission regardless of how high you get or or where what you achieve so and for me i was definitely in the second school i didn't make the olympics but i have zero regrets about making running my focus in in my 20s it was so much fun being all in, being yeah. fully engaged in pursuing something. And so I was able to take that experience and say, all right, I know I can enjoy the process and the struggle. And I think journalism is a struggle that I will uh, find more meaningful than the struggle I was on. You know, I was doing physics at the time and it just wasn't clicking for me. So anyway, that's a long-winded answer. But the, the, the yeah. point is, for me, it was about underst- realizing that, that there were goals that I wanted to pursue, but that I would enjoy pursuing them even if I didn't make them just like I did in running. Totally, and that's the exact mindset that uh, we were talking about a second
0: ago, which is the perception of what you're doing. The challenge is what plays into if you're going to be able to do it or not. So, with you with journalism, it was like, "Cool, this is got to be like a fun challenge. It's a challenge, but you liked what it was going for, and it was you cracking into the running sphere that you've talked to some of the top people now, and otherwise." it's hard to get to those top people if you're not doing something that's relating to it. So it was, that's a, a really cool way to see it like come full circle in a sense.
1: Yeah. And it, you know, like I said, right at the, at the, when you first asked the question, it's like, from what I'm sitting now, you can look back and say, Oh yeah, it all worked out. Like it was all meant to be. And of course, that's not how it feels when you're on the path, but uh, um, you know, it's funny how those things tend to kind of, uh all come together and seem like it was intended totally so with writing the book with doing the research what was some of the
0: the, the craziest insights that you came across besides writing because i know when writing you're creating a story you're making it something that is co- continually flowing but something that was like wow this just blew me away i would have never thought this
1: yeah it's interesting. So obviously. So I was researching this book for like 10 years, just in parallel with my journalism career. And so I I already knew a lot going into it, especially about the running stuff. Like I've been running for 25 years or whatever it is. Um, So it was hard to be really surprised in the running. But as I was trying to understand the nature of limits, that led me into some areas that I was less familiar with. So it's like, okay, in running, you breathe hard. Is it because you're like, so does this mean that oxygen is a limiting factor? Well, let's look into oxygen. Let's understand high altitude climbers. Let's understand free divers. And so then I ended up digging into this free diving world. And yeah, that was, that was a total yeah. eye opener to me. Like the idea, first of all, like that they can dive down, you know, uh, 300 feet, 330 yeah. feet on a single breath with no aids, but then just, okay, let's make it even simpler. Forget the diving part. Cause I don't know much about how hard it is to go down and up. I do know how hard it is to hold your breath. And it's like okay, you're telling me the world record for holding your breath is 11 minutes and 35 seconds. Well, that just changes my concept of what humans are capable of. And especially, I had a chance to talk to, uh, actually after the book came out, or after the book was finished, but before it came out, I had a chance to talk to a guy named Jason Hendrickson, who has set the, the US record for breath holding, which is eight minutes and 35 seconds. And just having him take me through it, like at four minutes, or between four and five minutes is when his breathing muscles start convulsing because his yep. body thinks he's like the, 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 the alarm bells are ringing we're done you, you know and his brain thinks you have to stop but he's able to he's learned to push through that for and to double the amount of time to stay till eight and a half minutes so that was a like just physiologically that people can do that it's amazing and the, and the things that go on in your body that allow breath holds to happen but also conceptually the idea that well, looky, here's an illustration of the difference between our perceived limits and our actual limits, and it's a pretty big difference.
0: Yeah, that is fascinating. I talked to um, Patrick and He wrote a book called "The Oxygen Advantage," um, which is all about um, nasal breathing versus mouth breathing and how, like, it has a play into the body. But one of his measures of a uh, be of understanding um, kind of health. And if your, uh, brain is tuned into actual understanding your blood oxygen levels was quite literally like if you breathe in, breathe out through your nose, pinch it, can you hold it for 40 seconds or more without having the strict contractions in the diaphragm or in the, uh, the throat. And that is crazy to be able to push through it till eight minutes and 30
1: seconds. Yeah. And yeah, so that's the thing. It's like you hear about crazy feats like that and you think oh, this guy must have been born with lungs that, you know, are twice the size of mine or something like that. And for sure, there's some physiology in it. But to hear him, to hear Jason Hendrickson talk about it and realize that, no, you know, he hits those limits just like I do and then pushes through them for another four minutes to realize that actually, yeah, there's some physical, but there's a lot of it is, is also mental. Yeah, so
0: what is that? Did you dive more into how that really plays into everything?
1: Yeah, so what's happening, I mean, our, our desire to breathe is mostly dictated not by a lack of oxygen, but by the uh, carbon dioxide levels rising mm. in the blood. So, the, the, I mean, and there's a few, that's the primary signal. So yeah. when you get to that point, for Jason Hendrickson, it's after about four minutes. For me, it's like after two seconds or something. <laughs> but when you get to that point where you feel like you absolutely have to breathe, that's not a signal that you're out of oxygen. It's a signal that that your, mm. uh, that your carbon dioxide levels are too high. And if you, if you learn to suppress that, then you can, the free divers, like really good free divers can actually, this is one of the rare places where people are able to push right to their actual limits. So they can hold their breath until they literally pass out from lack of oxygen. So what that tells us, actually, we don't have a warning system for oxygen, but the carbon dioxide system is is the warning oh. system we have. And then if you, So that's why freediving can be pretty dangerous because they're capable of holding their breath till they pass out. And if they do that underwater, then if they don't get rescued immediately, they'll die. But then not to get too deep into the physiology here, because they've done some really cool studies on on the freedivers. So what happens if you then breathe pure oxygen before you hold your breath, which is what David Blaine did like a decade ago. He held his breath for 17 minutes. And the record for holding your breath that way is like 23 minutes if you've breathed pure oxygen. So that way, you ignore the carbon dioxide, but you don't run out of oxygen. Actually, because you've since you've been breathing pure oxygen, you've got so much oxygen in your system. What happens actually is uh, you're holding your breath, and the oxygen that's in that's in your lungs is gradually being absorbed into your bloodstream and used. But it's not coming back. Uh, you know, you're not having yeah. any pump back into your lungs. So you're actually your lungs just reach this point where they essentially collapse. Uh, And that's a danger of, that's one of the big dangers of oxygen-assisted breath holding is that you'll get a collapsed lung because you can actually, you're just sitting there holding it and the oxygen is gradually going into your system and eventually there's nothing left in your lungs and that's when you have to to break the the breath hold.
0: That is is ridiculous, number one. But two, the ability for the brain to both of, I think it's so interesting that the mechanism for understanding if you need to take a breath is one, based on carbon dioxide, not on oxygen but two zooming out even greater that you have the ability to influence your body's system of saying yes or no
1: yeah it's it's i mean and it's so i guess what what, one thing i'll say on this topic is that a a lot of the reporting i did for the book it's like man i'd love to try that i'd love to go try climbing everest this one i I read about and i'm like these guys are nuts. I, yeah. like, I I really don't want to do this. It's like it's pure suffering. And the yeah. truth is, m- most of them who do this, it's it's not so much that they love torching themselves. It's that they love being underwater. Uh, they all they, they really love the f- the sort of feeling of being uh, the freedom of being underwater with no uh, equipment yeah. on. So that's the overriding motivation that that I think drives them to keep training themselves and pushing themselves is is to be able to be underwater uh with no with no equipment and sort of feel part of the ocean but it's it's uh it, it, it is pretty wild that what what they learn to do and i think it's pretty uh it's pretty unusual i, I like I, I don't know i don't know it's it's interesting cause, yeah. could, because could be i like it because it's such a simple system but when you compare it to something like running it's like are great marathoners able to push themselves to the limits in the same way that a good freediver can hold his breath till he passes out and of course we don't see marathoners pass out yeah. as much, but it's, you know, it's obviously a different and more complex sport. So it's hard to know. And it's hard, it's hard to believe that the best marathoners in the world are sort of less mentally tough than, than the best freedivers. But it, it's just, it's interesting, I guess, when you isolate just one factor, then you can really hold your finger in the flame uh, for, for a little longer.
0: Yeah. And it's similar to like when Michael Jordan played that game, when he had the flu for um, the winning game where his brain, his body's like, no, that i have an elevated temperature i'm not doing good and he's like nope we're playing the game
1: yeah it's it's it, it, it is amazing what you know what the right motivation and the right mindset can uh, can can force you to do
0: so did you find personally like a systematic way to start to trigger this or to really push past what your perceived limits are
1: so I will say the answer is to that is in theory yes, but in practice, uh, it's it's uh, I, I would I would say I'm not I haven't like changed my life or anything like that because it's it's a it's a process and not a sort of uh, not an easy trick. So the, the the big thing that I came away with being convinced is worthwhile is is relatively simple sports psychology techniques like motivational self talk. Mm-hmm. So this idea that if, if you recognize the negative thoughts that go through your head and if you can change those to you know, recognize them, refuse them, and, and, and replace them with more positive thoughts instead of saying, oh, this is too hard, I can't do this, saying I'm, I'm ready for this, I've trained for this, I can do this, uh, that it actually has a measurable effect on how your brain is perceiving what's going on in your body and thus what you're capable of doing. So it's, it's one thing to say, I believe that works it's another thing to do the actual work to make that happen. So, so for me, for instance, like I, you know, I'm, what am I? I'm 42. I, 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 still run every day and I race now and then, but the races are not, you know, I race a few times a year, but I'm not, I'm not super invested in the races right now. Like I'm not trying to get everything out of myself. So the motivation to, to put in the work, to to work on my my mindset is 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 not as strong as it might be and and that's the thing it's like this stuff takes work it's not yeah. like oh you just have to decide in your mind no it's it's it, it's different from going out and you know running a 20 mile run but mm-hmm. you st- it, it it takes mental work to change your mindset so I, I I'm, I'm convinced about what works but I, I would be lying if I said I had sort of implemented these tricks and I'm 26% more, you know, yeah. more efficient or more, you know, tougher or whatever the case may be. I, but I, I do think, be, you know, sort of awareness of how, you know, your thoughts and even your facial expression can influence your perception of effort that I, I'm much more aware and I'll catch myself if I'm getting into a sort of negative uh, cycle. Say, you know what, Alex, you know, you're not, you, you're not helping yourself by by wallowing sure. in self pity in this in this situation. So so I think that makes a difference but it's uh, I think it's important for people to understand that um None of this stuff is like an instant fix or an easy fix or uh, like You you're suddenly going to be able to clear the wall. It's 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 a more a question of like it's just Loading the dice so that you're a little more likely to get positive outcomes by by learning the ways to to kind of Uh, you know, make your self-talk more positive, for example. Totally. And I thought,
0: I want to bring up because you just brought up the facial expressions. I thought that was one of the most interesting things is that how your face is looking while you're doing something is changing your mindset behind it.
1: Yeah. And this, you know, and this has gotten a lot of attention because it's such a nice so so surprising so ridiculous in a way and there's been a There's a couple aspects to this I'll, I'll just sort of lay out a couple of the examples one is there's a study using subliminal Smiling and frowning faces where it's just like cyclists are doing a uh, you know an endurance test and on this on the wall in front of them There's pictures of either a smiling or a frowning face, but only for 16 milliseconds at a time So they don't actually see it. They're not conscious of seeing these smiling or frowning faces and yet when they're shown the smiling faces, they they I think they go about twelve percent longer in the endurance test. And then there's also others, you know, during the this Nike's Breaking Two marathon last year, people were noticing that the Elliot Kipchoge, who's the Olympic champion, that he was smiling periodically and in, in later in the race. And he afterwards he was saying, yeah, no, I do that deliberately. That it it really helps me. And so someone did a study where they had runners smiling or frowning on a treadmill, and the runners were two percent more efficient when they when they were smiling so there's all this stuff showing that somehow your facial expression influences what's going on and maybe it helps you relax but also there's this sort of idea that it's called the facial feedback hypothesis this idea that you know when i'm happy i smile but when if i just smile that makes me a a little more likely to feel happy even if without sort of realizing it Mm -hmm. and that's going to influence how my brain is interpreting the signals from the rest of my body so it's going to make me think make me feel that my effort if like let's say i'm running at a given pace running at that pace will feel a little easier if i'm smiling now the plus of this the reason i think it's interesting is that it's such a simple and elegant demonstration Mm. of how subtle things like your facial expression or your mood or the words or the, the pictures on the wall can affect your mindset and your performance so i think that's really a really helpful and important illustration of of the fundamental things that i'm talking about in the book the the danger is that it becomes a a, you know a cliche almost to the point of a joke is you know you just you know turn that frown upside down and you're gonna you know take on the world and and you know i certainly ever since i like i i I wrote about that one of the smiling studies last fall and it really got a lot of pickup like people people loved it and and you know it's kind of the Broken telephone effect where you start with what you what you hope is a fairly nuanced discussion of the effect, and then it gets picked up by a newspaper that gets picked up by a blog that gets tweeted out on Twitter and it's just yep. like all you have to do is smile and the, you know the world's your oyster so I, I think it's great I think it's really interesting I am when I go out running that 's one of the things i'm much more aware of, not so much that I'm running around with a big dopey grin on my face but that I'm, I'm much more aware of when i'm out there running and I realize. My face is like, oh, ah, yeah. you know, I've, I've got the grimace of agony. And I'm like, yeah. and then when I stop and think about it, it's like, this grimace isn't helping me run fast. I have no need for this grimace. And it's probably in affecting my perception of how hard I'm going. Yeah. Why not just relax my face if nothing else? So I think, I think it's useful. I just, I, I you know, I, I don't want my, my epitaph to be, he's the guy who said smiling would make everything easy because it's, it's not, it, it isn't quite that easy.
0: Totally, but I mean, even um, when I was in psychology class, they talked about if you have to keep the pencil um, up, like on your you, lip. you
1: you bite it, bite it between oh, your yeah, teeth, bite it. yeah, and that activates the same muscles as smiling. And then you, you, you look at a far side cartoon, and it's like, man, this this, this stuff's hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> uh, compared to if you've got the pencil in your in uh, in your in your lips, as if you're sucking on a straw, which activates frowning muscles. So um, yes,
0: and see, okay. go ahead.
1: Well, I was just going to say it. Yeah, I mean, it, this is actually this finding. It's it's probably worth noting. This finding has been challenged in the last two years. There was a replication effect that that didn't find it, but there have been so many demonstrations that did find it. Psychology is as probably a lot of listeners know is is uh, struggling right now with trying to figure out which findings are replicable and which not, which aren't, and how you figure out what's the real effect. This is one of the findings that this facial feedback effect has, has been challenged. But, uh, personally, my, t- my sort of big picture take looking at the evidence pro and con is I think it's a real effect. It doesn't, oh, yeah. but, but the, the replication challenge just sort of highlights this idea that it's, it doesn't always work in all contexts. It's not a huge effect. It's something that's there, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's subtle.
0: Yeah. But it could also be similar to like, if you dress better, you feel better. And if you're smiling, you feel better. And I know that a lot of, uh, um, more, uh, Fascial based exercises like uh, rolling out your calves or doing a stretch. They're like, make sure you're smiling and breathing regularly. Otherwise, your body's activating a sympathetic nervous system. And if it's doing that, then that part of the body isn't going to relax. Like if you're smiling, if you're happy, and if it can just go through that state.
1: Yeah. And there's a, so there's kind of a long history of this. There, There was a very famous sprint coach. I mentioned in the book a guy named Bud Winter in the 1950s and 60s who he wrote a book called Relax and Win. And his, he was the guy who sort of introduced this, or at least it was most closely associated with this idea that, you know, relax your face and the rest of your body will follow. And certainly when I was a kid, you know, coming up as a a track runner, I heard that all the time. It's like, you know, your cheeks should be bouncing around when you run. yeah. Because if you, if your face is relaxed, then your arms are probably relaxed and your legs are relaxed. And if, but if you've got a tight face, that's a sign that. It's, you know, that it's kind of like that, you know, the leg bone is connected to the hip bone and the hip bones connect, <laughs> like it's all connected. And so, uh, you know, and it doesn't take any sort of deep mystical understanding to think that, yeah, rela- you know, just being aware of relaxing your face can help to, totally. to, uh, to, to, sort of connect to the rest of your body too. Yeah. It's one of those
0: subtle cues that, um, once conscious activates everything else. It's just like anything else. I mean, it's a trickle effect
1: and and that's you know going back to the the motivational self talk you know that's that's kind of what you're looking for is you're looking for a simple thing like a couple of words or an action that can have a much bigger sort of uh, avalanche effect that that, that affects in and end of your whole body or, or whatever so you're looking for these simple cues and that again smiling is is a, again a good one not just because of what it does to your facial muscles, but if if you can have that so that it it also cues you to the, relax the rest of your body, so, yeah. you know maybe stand up straight or whatever like there's a lot of these cues that are more than about the cue themselves they're 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 triggering a whole a whole sequence of behaviors behaviors ideally
0: totally it's like a meditation mantra or I know Zen running is something similar where they're like literally trying to get into a meditative state while running, and then you can run for a lot longer because you're zoned in. And everything is working cohesively together without your mind being like, what's going on next? What's going on next?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 you definitely want to kind of tune out those uh, the the voices that sometimes try and get in there.
0: Yeah, we all got, and I know you were talking about this a second ago, or at least you briefly mentioned it was the, the positive self-talk that um, Olympic athletes or some of the top in the world have. Um, I know, the study, I've seen so many different numbers, but it's like you have 50,000 thoughts a day or 70,000. And like the higher performing people have less of the, uh, the negative thoughts and more of the same thoughts.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, and we can talk about the, the sports psychology and the motivational self talk. But what was it? One thing that was really interesting for me last year, spending some time covering the Nike's Breaking Two marathon, I had a chance to, to spend some time with Elliot Kipchoge, who's the Olympic marathon champion. Mm-hmm. And he's not thinking in terms of like sports psychology or motivational self talk, but he's doing it. He's, he, he has his own ways of, he's, he's building up his self confidence and he's saying, you know, you know, I don't run with my legs. I run with my heart and my mind. And he's, he's building up, he's deliberately and systematically building up his self belief and getting his, his positive self talk in the right place. So I think, I think what you find is if you look at great performers across domains and across time, you find that a lot of them have found their own, you know, intuitively found f- some of these quote unquote, you know, breakthroughs or yeah. answers that, that some of the stuff, a lot of the stuff that I wrote about in my book, I think it's like you look at Olympic champions, most of them found that out, f- f- figured that out for themselves, but it's a question yeah. of how can the rest of us kind of figure out some of these things and, and put it in, in a sort of st- standardized or systematized language that, that we can access rather cause you know, it's, you ask, 20 different Olympic champions, what it took them to get there, you'll get 20 different answers. And, yep. and it's sometimes it's hard to, I, it's well, one of my, so my, David Epstein, who's a sports yeah. journalist who wrote the sports gene, he, he had a, a quote that I thought was really apt once, w- which was, uh, you know, just because you're a bird doesn't mean you're an ornithologist. <laughs> so you, 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 you may be a brilliant athlete, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're able to articulate what makes you brilliant. Yep. And if you ask athletes, what makes them brilliant? Often they have, you know, as we all do and all would, we all have sort of self-serving narratives that explain why we're so great. You know, I, I'm so great because I, I I was the one who was willing to work harder than everyone else, or because I had such incredible natural talent. But sometimes those narratives aren't, aren't don't actually fully explain what's going on, and and so um, I think looking for the bigger patterns as to what's in common between these athletes mm-hmm. can be pretty helpful.
0: Yeah, I think that's um, that's a huge thing, though. I know. I've heard the analogy, like the fish doesn't, can't you explain the ocean to you? And it's exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. In in any field you see that.
1: Yeah. And, and of course that doesn't mean we should ignore the, the bird or the fish's perspective that they, they, they often, they have some very, very unique insight, but uh, especially when you're, you know, uh, you know, listening to a paid advertisement uh, uh, where the athlete is like, yeah, this was yeah. the secret to my success. Uh First of all, you know, the money talks. And second of all, yes. yeah, it's, it's it can be very hard to understand yourself. In, in the yeah. sense, understanding yourself may be harder than understanding other people in some sense.
0: Oh, yeah. And you're more biased when you think you're not biased. So.
1: <laughs> yeah. When you're blind to the biases, that's the real danger. Yeah. The real danger zone.
0: You're like, it was just me. I, you know, I, it's, I'm the best. I'm just the best. I work the hardest. I'm the best. So.
1: I mean, it is funny, even I I know when I try and, you know, I I am not a Olympic champion or anything, but when I think about successes I've had in running and try to explain what's good about me, the narrative shifts depending on where I'm at in my life, who I'm talking to. Like, sometimes I find myself emphasizing how, what a, you know, dedicated trainer I was, how, you know, four years of college, I never missed a practice and blah, blah, blah. Other times I'll be thinking more along the lines of, oh man, when I was injured, I came back and I hit. My, I got back to good performance level after, yep. level after just three weeks. This just shows that, I, you know, I have some natural talent or whatever. So we, we tell ourselves, depending on what situation or, you know, what we're trying to emphasize, I, you know, I watch myself doing this, but I don't do it on purpose. I, I, can, I can see my sort of narrative of my own abilities or strengths and weaknesses. It, it shifts depending on the circumstance.
0: Yeah, that's one of the um, – I just finished incognito. Um, And he talks a lot about how we are all these different. We're not just like who we think we are now, depending on who we are, who we're with, what the period of time, what we're doing, we're different people. And like, I saw recently an article about multiple personality disorder and they're like, maybe this is like showing different consciousnesses exist in one body just because they're like, how can someone like literally almost physiologically change when they're switching personalities?
1: Yeah, it's uh, I mean it is interesting and it's something we all, you know, we we've all had the experience of, you know, being with a friend or a family member and then someone else that they want to impress or that they have some sort of connection with shows up and all of a sudden they're like talking differently, using different language, you know, their posture changes and you can really see that, but I think we're that happens on a much more subtle subtle level, you know, a million times a day as we pass through, you know, different different con- social contexts and and so on.
0: Exactly. So, I did need to ask, um, and it's a question that I ask all my guests: is Are there any higher leverage skills that have really helped you with running, with journalism, with just about everything? And so, a higher leverage skill is something that you can learn in one field. Let's say you learned it in running, or you learned it in journalism, and now you can extrapolate it and use it in other places, like learning to learn better, learning to breathe better, pattern recognition. There, it's something that you can take and you know what it is and then you can use it somewhere else to help you do something better.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I talked, it's, it's sort of a cliche for me as a, as a, you know, long runner. There's a lot of lessons I take from running that I think are, are really applicable. I probably the most obvious one and it's not like a super sexy one or anything. It, it, I mean, I guess that you'd call it showing up. I, you know, I mentioned that I in college, four years of college, I didn't miss a, a, a daily practice. Um, you know, and I was sick sometimes, but if I was sick, yeah. I would just go and watch practice. Uh, just because I was, you know, at 5 p.m. every day, that was yep. that was where I was. And I've thought a lot about that in the, you know, starting in journalism. But, you know, by the time I finished journalism school and started freelancing for the first time, I was in my early 30s. I was 30, I guess. Um, and so, you know, I knew I had a long road to hoe and there's a lot of journalism is one of those fields that has a lot of young talented people in it who have the ability to make a go of it Um, and there's not that many people who will still be freelancing at 40 and so one of the things that I think I did really well and it was sort of consciously taken from my running experiences was was showing up for every assignment was not necessarily trying to just like in, in in running you don't you don't want to win every workout because you 're yeah. not going to be sustainable, but uh, every assignment that I had an opportunity to do, I did it I, and for the most part, I did it on time and I did it with the right number of words and I did it uh, you know at the, i I, hit, I was writing about the correct topic, yeah. like I understood what the assignment was, and so that consistency um, I think was really crucial. F- to me, both for getting better, I became a better and better journalist because even though, even when I wasn't like, I will say I start, you know, my, when I started freelancing, my, my only contact was, or one of my, my first contacts was with the editor of The Bottom Line, which is a Canada's yeah. accounting newsletter. So I was writing about freelance accounting, mm-hmm. or I was, writing, I was writing about accounting, which was not what yeah. I, you know, I, I gave up a, a reasonably sort of good job as a physicist, to go and, and be a freelancer going to accounting conferences and writing about accounting, which I knew nothing about and which is kind of like the, no offense to any accountants out there, but it's the, the sort yeah. of cl- cliche of boringness. Yep. <laughs> I, but, but I showed up and, I, and I, I, I did those assignments and I did them consistently and well and, and earned the trust of editors and got better at be, and better at, at doing what I needed to do. So anyway, so that's a long-winded answer, but, but I, it's like, and it's not a sexy answer, but I think- No, it is just like that it's it's really one of the things i took from running it's it's just you you don't you don't win it you don't get really psyched up and say i want to be the, cha- the the champion of the world and you don't achieve that in a week you yep. achieve you achieve that with sort of measured steady consistency
0: yeah show up and realize that there's no overnight success
1: yeah and 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 i guess just back to what i said before which is the other thing i took from running is that show up <laughs> and enjoy the process of showing up even yes. if it's not going to be intrinsically uh it's you know getting waking up and doing your 10 mile run in the morning when you're already tired and and have start to go to work it's not like uh you know eating a birthday cake or something like that but you you find joy yeah. in the process even if even when the process is challenging
0: yeah and it's it's also um what it seems like is uh you're You think more about it as I'm here now. This is what I'm doing, and not what a lot of people I think would um, would like to change. Which is, I'm here now, and I'm thinking about what I'm doing later, or I'm thinking about in five years. I'm the pro already. Like, why am I not there already? But instead,
1: yeah. I mean, and don't get me wrong. A lot of those ten mile, you know, rainy ten mile runs in the morning. I was daydreaming about a potential future, but it never became the, the, the sort of focus or that this will be only be worthwhile when that happens. Uh, it's, and, you know, and again, now that I'm, you know, I'm a little older and can look back with some context. It's like, man, some of those Sunday morning runs with my friends, you know, two miles at a, at a mm-hmm. or two hours at a, you know, challenging effort, but with a bunch of good friends who are, who are on a shared journey with me, it's like, yeah, you know, I love that. Those were, those are some of the great moments of my life. Not not the not going out and partying, but but being out there on a shared mission with him. Yes.
0: And that is uh, both the collective identity, Ubuntu, which in African is like group collective consciousness, hmm. um, but also um, I'm huge on experiential time and understanding the implications of the more that you go and you have these actual good experiences, that's the enriching life that you can look back and be like, it's amazing. Versus like, cool, you went, partied, you got drunk you think that you had a fun night, but do you remember it? No. And is it going to be something that you put on your wall or show your kids? Probably not.
1: Yeah. it's interesting. I've, I've been, uh, I've watched a couple online speeches by Jesse Itzler about, and who, who's you know, keeping track of how many nights or how many days he has left until he reaches his average life, life expense, expectancy. And yeah. he wants every one of those days to be memorable and interesting and worthwhile. You know, yeah. I, I'm not going to tattoo the number of days I have to, <laughs> to, to, to live, but uh, I think that's an you know, uh, that's one way of 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 sort of remember of reminding yourself that yeah you you'll know, be out there uh, doing things that are worthwhile and fun and and challenging. Yeah,
0: yeah. And uh, wait, but why is this awesome blog? But he wrote about like how many uh, if he eats this many chicken wings like in this amount of time, like how many chicken wing meals he has left. How many like visits with his parents, like all this stuff, and it was—it's very surprising. Like, mo- for most people, you spend ninety percent of your time with your parents by the time you're uh, out of college, huh. and it was like, oh, wow. Well, that's a huge. I mean, you only have ten percent of the time with your parents theoretically left. Yeah, you gotta enjoy that. Exactly. So, is there anything right now that you're currently questioning? And so, this could be politics, religion, the way doorknobs work, whatever it is that most people in common consensus are going, Yeah. And you're like, I just really don't think it works that way.
1: <laughs> uh, well, not to be too self focused, but, you know, a big thing that I'm questioning right now is, is what the heck I want to do yeah. with the rest of my life uh, or, you know, in the more immediate future with the next five years of my life. Um, I kind of, spent, you know, something like 10 years moving towards this moment of, of, uh, figuring out endurance, uh, or, you know, figuring out this book I wanted to write. Yeah. Um, I don't know if, uh, so there's kind of two possible paths. One is I keep writing about endurance and just sort of keep saying variations on the same thing. Or the other is I sort of start from scratch and find something else to be passionate about. Both, both, you know, I don't think I'll follow either of the full extremes. but yeah. But I, I don't know where, where in the middle I go from there. Whether I want to want to reinvent myself in some new way, or whether I want to continue along this path. So I, I'm actually, I've kind of given myself, at least to the end of the year, to not even try and answer that question because I'm just yeah. not even close to answering it. I don't, I don't know what I want to do next. Uh, but um, yeah, in terms of uh, you know bigger picture things that I, I'm wondering about, you know the 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 current state of the world prompts a lot of uh oh yeah thoughts about how how people can live together and and uh you know how what what the what the path forward is to and and uh you know how much i can make the rest of my life about me versus how much i should be thinking about you know yeah. bigger circles and how big is that circle is the circle 7 billion wide and and what can we do to to broaden that circle
0: yeah, that's that's a huge one. First, I think everybody needs to experience at some point in time the ability to give themselves time to really sit back and think freely about what they want to do, where they want to go. And I think that's awesome, especially since you want to set a deadline so you'll come up with exactly what you want to by then, but you don't have to have that.
1: Yeah, you know, just on that topic and not to be self-indulgent, but I will say I was very very lucky um, when I was 24 and 25, mm-hmm. um, I had gone to grad school in Britain and then I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. And I moved back in with my parents. So that's where the real luck is that I was in a situation where I, my parents were willing to put me up for, for a year. Um, and I, you know, ostensibly I was running full time and I did a little bit of tutoring to, to make a little bit of money, but basically I had a year cause I didn't know what I wanted to do with life. And It yeah. was a great year in a lot of ways. I, I read a, a, a you know I read a huge number of really really interesting books, and I just sort of did fun things. But I also had the time and space to kind of think about what do I want out of life. Now it wasn't a linear thing where I then said I want to be a journalist and went became a yeah. journalist. In fact, at the end of that year, I was like, okay, I've given myself a year. I need to get on do something. So I actually took another physics job. I, I that's I moved down and worked, yeah. worked in, in Washington D.C. as a physicist for for an, another three years. Um, but the the seeds planted in that year by, by, by having the time to just kind of let thoughts percolate. That's what eventually led me to say, okay, after, after another two and a half years, I was like, no, I'm pretty sure I do want to be a journalist. And I know I've had time to think about this during that year. And so I was, I don't think I would have made the leap if I hadn't had that space in my life to, to jump. And so I always feel sort of, uh, self-conscious giving this as like career or life advice. Cause it, f- the, the fact of the matter is not everyone's lucky enough to be in a situation where they can take a breath, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. but, but, um, but at the same time, I, uh, you know, I give, I give myself a little bit of credit because at that point, 24, 25, a lot of my friends were, you know, getting real jobs and starting to earn money and do fun things. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm okay. Having no money for, for yeah. a while and not progressing on my career because i actually really want to take the time to make sure i'm on the right path before i just dive headlong into it so um i'm trying to to the extent that i can life is a little different now i have a you know a a mortgage and two kids and and stuff like that but i'm 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 giving myself some space hoping that um whatever decision i make will be the you know i don't think there's only one right decision but hoping that i make a decision that's that's consistent with the way i want to spend the next five years
0: Totally. And I think, so we'll relate it to the other thing that you're questioning, which is how individually or collectively do we all grow together? And I think a lot of the reason for we see chaos in certain things is because there hasn't been a time to step back and be like, wait, is this all right or not? We're like, we run so quickly without understanding the form or the why or giving ourselves the ability to go, which direction do we want to go in?
1: yeah it's it 's a problem, and for a lot of people again like yeah. it 's hard to imagine having the time to 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 catch your breath and think when you 're just trying to focus on you know the next month 's rent or or paycheck totally. or whatever the case may be so it's a, it becomes a cycle that 's very hard to break out of
0: but, yeah uh, yeah if you 're not constrained to cities and you look up Nomad List for anybody who's listening, he literally gives you the cheap, like everywhere he goes around the world and he gives you the safety, the food, how cheap it is to live for a month. If you're eating three out three times a day, it is phenomenal. It's awesome.
1: That's cool. I, it kind of makes me wish I was 15 years <laughs> younger and uh, no mortgage. <laughs>
0: he's, he's, he, see, like the best places, of course, is like the Philippines, Thailand, like those areas. It's like, uh, he even like documents what areas are like the hipster area. What areas like the, the wealthier people who like eat better dinners? Like, it's very interesting. One guy created it himself, but it's like everywhere in the world. You look at like San Francisco; it's like six thousand five hundred for a month ridiculous. You look at the Philippines, nine hundred dollars whole month, and that's eating out three times a day. <laughs> oh man, yeah, it, it's crazy.
1: So, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, uh, uh, I'm just remembering my apartment in suburban Washington, D.C., in a, a, a suburb called Riverdale, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it's now 15 years ago, but I was paying $625 a month for quite a nice uh, one-bedroom apartment. And I, I I probably spent 300 bucks or less on food. So, it's like, you don't necessarily have to go to the Philippines. There's ways of... Oh yeah. Uh, if, you know, and I didn't have cable. I didn't have a phone line. I didn't have a lot of things. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the we're, I mean, this is a whole different discussion and, uh, and a big long one, but people get wrapped into a lot of ongoing expenses that they don't need. And you you can live cheaply if yes. you want to. I mean, I got on my soapbox for one more thing and say, yeah. when I started as a freelancer, of course, journalism for the last ever since I've started journalism has been in free fall it's very hard to make a living mm-hmm. uh, I, I was comfortable making a living as a freelancer because my expenses were like almost zero i you know I had a a, a small apartment and i d- I didn't have cable i didn't have landlines i didn't have all sorts of things but as a result, I had the freedom to choose my assignments and not to get sucked into needing to take jobs that would conflict with my ability to to uh, to move my career in the direction that I wanted it to move, I could take those assignments because I didn't need to make much to live. I had, you know, a yeah. thousand bucks a month and I could, I was, I was okay.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, that's, I mean, I'm a huge fan of minimalism. Um, I travel around a lot and I have a suitcase, a backpack and a camera bag. And that's like all I really need. Um, and once you realize that you're like, wait, so I don't have to, slave myself to make more money for things that are going to tie me to somewhere that I'm not happy with What?
1: it's a, it's, it's a, yeah, it's the sort of whatever the blue pill or the red pill is like, hang yeah. on, what am I, what am I doing? Um, but yeah, it's, and I, and I say this, you know, I'm, I, I'm not just to make sure I'm not sounding like I, I, I think I know everything. i I say this from a house that I, I, as I said, I have a mortgage now and, yeah. I'm, and i and the house is filled with crap. Um, we still try and live pretty cheap because we don't have that much yeah. money. But, but uh, yeah, it is. It's it's so easy to get tied down by a bunch of like, uh, you know. And I look, I'm looking out the window right now behind my computer. And I'm like, oh, so much lawn care that I need to do. And I'm like <laughs> doing it's like, but hang on, I don't want to spend my time doing that. Why do I get? How do? How am I letting myself get tied down into things that are not conscious choices of how I want to spend my time?
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's the biggest thing that you could ever make is a conscious choice and what you want to do with the time that you have.
1: Yeah, no judgment on people who love their lawn care. It's, it's, yeah. As long as you're making that conscious choice, then it's not just like, oh, well, there's a lawn there. I guess I need to do yeah. X, X things with it.
0: Yeah, yeah, the people who go out and they're like, oh my God, you see my new fern? I'm like, oh my God, it's amazing <laughs> <fir.">
1: <laughs> like, It's beautiful. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so is there anything that you're obsessed with right now?
1: Hmm. Probably the biggest thing that I, I keep thinking about is I, I need to get back to the, into the wilderness into the wild uh it gets a lot harder i'm living in a city of you know toronto's a city of four million uh it's uh tons of there's wilderness that's not too far away but the traffic makes it very hard to get there without a pretty big you know if you try and head out of town on a friday it's pretty miserable and uh and you know i have a two-year-old and a four-year-old so i can't just sort of uh Oh, like in the olden days if i if i wanted to go somewhere i just went because i i don't i don't have a de, you know a day desk job yeah. or a day-to-day job or anything but it's much harder to organize that but i think you know in the spirit of what you were saying about simplicity uh, for me that's one of the beautiful things about being in the woods for a week you know canoeing or, or backpacking it's like i've got everything i need on my back there's nothing that's distracting me because all i need to do is find shelter and, and cook my meals each day yeah. stay dry or whatever and um, to me, it's always been hugely restorative to get out there. And I'm, I, I haven't really gotten a good wilderness trip in, in I would say two years now. And it's, um, it's that's becoming an obsession. How am I, how am I going to, how am I going to get out there? Where, how am I going to find some time to uh, just get away from everything? Totally. And
0: that is very similar to taking a year off. If you get one good week, or it could even be less time where you're just in the wilderness and it's just you maybe some really close friends and you get to live with just what you have you will reevaluate everything you do why you do it and what you actually need to live which is not as much as most people would think
1: yeah there was a book a couple years ago about by a guy in Britain called about micro adventures was his his term and he was oh, making cool. the points like everyone gets hung up on like where, where am I going to find a week and he was like just get on the train you know pack with a back, with a sleeping bag in your backpack or a bivy bag or whatever uh who's in britain but he he made yeah. some videos of it, of just like going you know he going f- directly from a conference out and just sleeping on top of a hill somewhere outside the city uh you know he's sort of a sort of tacit advocate of yeah forget about the rules of whose property it is, just do do it respectfully and do it quietly and you won't get busted <laughs> um and but 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 the the larger point was it's like a week is great but you know what six days is still pretty good five days is okay yep. and if worse comes to worse you know one night's not bad uh, yeah. you know it can still be pretty good and so you know probably the last good adventure i had you know i was in the spirit of this micro adventure some friends and i just threw our tents on our bikes and we biked uh about 30k from here there's a park where you can camp uh, awesome and, and, and camp there and came back the next day that was not as good as a week but it was something there was there you know a few layers got stripped off the the sort of mental armor just by by getting away for even for a day totally
0: and just that that the ability to be in nature nature bathing or whatever they call it whatever it will be
1: yeah there's some trendy words out there but you know you know there was a new york times article on nature bathing just a couple of days yeah. ago and it's like I, I sort of cringed a little bit reading it but i, I totally agree with it i just kind of cr- cringed at the as, yeah. at the you know encroaching trendiness but uh, uh. But yeah. for sure, it's it's uh, there's a lot there's some pretty deep connections to to nature. I think to that if you can surround yourself in it, you'll get something out of it.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Before we sign off, where can people find you?
1: Probably the easiest place is on Twitter. My handle is sweat science, all one word, just sweat science. That's where I post articles I've written and other things that I've found interesting. I'm most reliable there. Um, I do have a website alexhutchinson.net with uh, you know if you want to look at my cv or whatever uh or <laughs> uh, more de- or, yeah i have some old articles favorite old articles posted there but uh, yeah twitter is is a, is a good place to connect
0: awesome otherwise at the end of the year we'll all be looking forward to what you got what you decided <laughs>
1: <for>. <laughs> no, no no that's when i start thinking about it <laughs> then then the clock starts again and i get yeah. another year to decide
0: <laughs> well just one more maybe it's like that five more minute roll when you're in the shower you're like i oh, just Five more minutes. Okay. Three, two, Now I didn't start. Reset. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. We shall see. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Okay. Well, thanks. It was fun to uh, to explore some unexpected uh, corners. Awesome. Thanks so much
0: for listening to this episode of Heightened Living with your host, Austin Floyd. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe. And for more great content and to stay up to date, visit HeightenedLiving.com on Facebook at Heightened Living. We'll catch you next time.